Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm really excited to kick off our second season with you. Throughout this season, we'll be exploring the topics of learning, well-being, and equity. In the coming weeks, guests like Pedro Noguera, Andy Hargraves, Christine Sertam, and other leading experts in education will guide our learning on these important topics. What better way to kick off season two of the podcast than with a conversation with Pedro Noguera? Pedro is currently the Dean of the Rossier School of Education and a distinguished professor of education at the University of Southern California. Not many academics can say that they've served as a tenured professor at UCLA, NYU, Harvard, and Berkeley. Pedro Noguera can. I remember the first time I heard Pedro speak. I was mesmerized. He's relatable to all of us who don't have his distinguished background. He takes on tough subjects that we need to be wrestling with in education. In today's episode, Pedro talks to us about equality in education and in life. What topic could be more important as our children head back to school in September? Hi, Pedro. I can't tell you how happy I am to be having a conversation with you today. Welcome. Thanks, Jen. It's good to be with you again. We had a session last winter, I believe, I believe in February, where we had a live roundtable with you and Michael Fullen and had great feedback afterwards saying we'd love to hear more about Pedro's work. And, you know, you really put a spotlight on equality and that's what people wanted to hear more about. Yeah, those are important issues all over the world. I think it's one of the great challenges we face is how to make sure we serve all kids and use education as a means to improve their lives and expand opportunity. Pedro, one of the things I've noticed, and I'm not sure if this is the difference between kind of Canadian language use and language use in the U.S., but you talk about equality. And I know, you know, in Canada, we talk more about equity. Can you describe a little bit about the difference between those two and how you use those terms? Yeah. In fact, I mean, I I talk a lot about equity. In fact, I've written several books on the topic, but I do draw a distinction between the two. Equality is about treating everyone the same, which is important, making sure that all kids, regardless of their backgrounds, have access to an education, have access to, you know, highly qualified teachers, enough food and health care to meet the developmental needs. So equality is, I think, an important principle rooted in, in most democratic societies. Equity goes further. And it's kind of the distinction between, as an example, making sure everyone gets shoes versus making sure everyone gets shoes that fit. And when it comes to education, we know that it tends to be that students who come from families with greater needs, uh, whether those needs are related to poverty or to other circumstances, not speaking English as the first language, for example, or uh, not having two parents, whatever those needs are, it tends to be that the kids with the greatest needs do least well academically. And that's because we haven't figured out how to address those other needs that get in the way of learning and get in the way of their development. And so real equity work is about finding out how to eliminate barriers that prevent kids from excelling and from thriving in schools. It's also about ensuring that the skills and the abilities of our staff, teachers, principals, 
staff, et cetera, match the needs of the kids. That's the hard part because unfortunately, it's easiest to serve the kids who need the least help. <laughs> and part of the reason why it's easy to serve those kids is because their parents have invested so much in them already. Many teachers like to work with those kids because it's not as hard. The challenge of education is how do we make a difference for the kids who need more, who come to us who don't have a lot of support at home, who need more motivation and encouragement, who need other things, uh, counseling, advising, mentoring. That When we make a difference for those students, then education serves as a means to create a more just and equitable society. And so that's the real work that I try to address in, in a lot of my own research and writing. And that's what's really fun about it, Pedro, is that, you know, you're in a position now, dean of a school of education that's very prominent. Not only can you do the research part and the writing the books to help get that message out there, but you're also very well placed to actually change some things institutionally within your institution and then the influence that you have with deans of education and other sites across North America as well, North America and beyond. Part of the reason why I took on this job is because I felt, you know, I've been involved as a professor, researcher for 30 years, and I really wanted to figure out how do I increase my impact on the field. And what I've seen already is that there are many people across the United States, across the world, who are looking for ways to improve outcomes for kids, improve the way education is delivered and serves particularly disadvantaged communities. In the United States, over half the children come from families that are either in poverty or close to poverty levels. And poverty is an educational issue because kids who have basic needs that haven't been met often don't do as well. And and blaming those children and their families certainly isn't a strategy for improving outcomes. So educators need guidance on how to do this work well so they can make a difference. I think it's particularly helpful to look at examples around the world where this is being done well, that we can learn from. And that's what I try to do also. Pedro, when you know you talked about this being a global phenomenon, and I think that's, you know, you try to look at, is there hope in these conversations? And is it actually going to result in better outcomes for all kids? And one of the things that I think is really hopeful, just in this Knowledge Hook series, in the roundtables that I've hosted for the last 18 months, it doesn't matter the topic that is kind of the lead for the roundtable, whether it's mathematics or whether it's school leadership or whether it's well-being or whether it's social emotional skills or pedagogical practice. Every panelist that we have had on roundtables somehow brings up the comment of equity and equality and how whatever we're doing, we have to be seeing it through that lens. That's something that we didn't hear before. And I think that's something relatively new and that inspires hope. Yeah, I'm encouraged. And I do see a lot of evidence that educators around the world are more focused on the issue. Mm -hmm. I don't think that necessarily means they know what to do. And I want to draw a distinction here between what I would call naive optimism and a more pragmatic approach to addressing the issues. Naive optimism is reflected in slogans. So you think, for example, in the United States, we had a law called No Child Left Behind, which sounds like an equity-based principle and policy, Mm -hmm. except when you look closely at the way the law was implemented, on the one hand, they wanted evidence that all kids were learning. On the other hand, they did very little to address issues related to poverty and the fact that we have concentrated the poorest and the most disadvantaged kids 
into certain schools. Without adequate resources, most of those schools are failing. So it takes more than a good slogan to change outcomes. Here's what we know empirically. We know that the strongest predictor for how well children will do in school is family income. When you combine family income with parent education, you can predict with great consistency how well children will do in school. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, it's the backgrounds of kids that are driving outcomes. How do we disrupt that? That's equity work. We know it can be done. We know there are lots of individuals who come from low-income and disadvantaged backgrounds who've been able to use education to improve their lives. I'm just one of many examples. Neither of my parents graduated from college or from high school, but they managed to send all six of my siblings off to universities, top universities in the U.S., living proof that your background should not determine what you can accomplish through education. How do we make it so that that's not the exception? I know in Canada, there are many examples of individuals like that because I know some of them. But I also know that that is not necessarily the norm. And so I think the, the equity work, when it's rooted in a pragmatic reading of the issues and an understanding of the needs of children and the communities we serve, calls upon us to go beyond slogans, calls upon us to go beyond what we've already done. Because what we have to realize is what works for affluent children may not work for children of color, for children who come to us with greater needs. And that means that we're going to have to become more skillful, more humble in the way we approach the work, because there's a lot we may not know about how to engage communities that have been poorly served. And that, I think, is where many school systems struggle. It's a good point. And, you know, one of the things that I think it points out is that with something like equity, every person within the system has a role to play, and they all have to see themselves as having a role to play that they can have an impact, because sometimes it's so overwhelming that the teacher in the classroom who's really focusing on great pedagogical practices, that's one piece that's happening that's very close to that student. But that teacher needs to know that something's happening at the school level, something's happening at the district level, at the state, provincial, national level, and then actually at the societal level to get at poverty and, and issues like that. And I think that's some of the work that we do, and that's some of the work that I've liked that I've seen that you've done, Pedro, is you describe, you know, what are some of those roles and what each of us can be doing? Because we want to get it to a point where we just don't have a couple of examples of kids that have made it in spite of our systems, but they've made it because of our systems, because our systems are helping to make sure that every child has that opportunity. Well, that's an excellent point. And Canada, I think, does so much more than the United States to ensure that it's not schools alone that are addressing these issues. You have a national health care system. You've been doing more to ensure that families that are in poverty have the supports for children. The United States is very far behind. We're just beginning. The Biden administration has now enacted laws to give families in poverty more support for their children. We now finally have what's becoming a national health insurance policy. But, you know, you can't expect schools to solve these problems by themselves. Exactly. And uh, what we've done as a society is we blame schools for problems that are not simply educational or have to do with other societal issues. And by now we should know blame is not a strategy for getting better. But that's often where we get stuck. But I would say educators often do it too. They'll sit around blaming parents or blaming the students or blaming the politicians. Blame is never an effective way for figuring out what to do. 
it might be the easiest thing to do, but it's certainly not the right thing to do. And it certainly doesn't get us to the outcomes that we need. You know, when we see really progressive schools or progressive districts or progressive jurisdictions, they've taken it on and they're trying to see, you know, what are all the pieces that would have to be in place to get right down to that student and to make sure that that student can have those positive outcomes. You talked at the beginning, Pedro, of, you know, you're seeing good examples of things globally as far as putting that emphasis on equity. Can you describe one that comes to mind quickly and you think, yeah, they're moving in the right direction? Yeah, I've been impressed by some of the things I've seen in New Zealand, for example, where it's been a journey, but New Zealand has finally kind of embraced what I would call an approach to education that acknowledges the indigenous people, the Maori and others, so much that now the languages of the Maori and other Pacifica people are embraced in schools, including the prime minister, her children are learning Maori. There's an attempt to engage communities that have historically been disenfranchised and left out and to embrace their culture. And culture is the milieu, is the way in which we learn. You cannot, I think for too long, we've expected children, we see this with First Nations in Canada, to give up their culture as a part of entering the mainstream. And what we know is that that's had disastrous consequences. When our children have the language, uh, their first language, as well as other languages, when they are have a sense of pride about who they are, they're much better able to navigate the world and to be a resource and an asset to their own communities. And so what I'm seeing is that in countries like New Zealand, this work is being embraced. I also have seen that in Canada, beginning to see it in parts of the United States and elsewhere. But it's a journey because you can't separate the educational work we're doing from our history. And in societies that are rooted on colonialism and rooted in, uh, in an experience of disenfranchising indigenous populations, you know, it's taken time for people to understand that education's got to play a role in change, in creating equity truly in the sense that everyone is able to fully participate as equal members of society and as equal participants in their culture, in their language. It's such a good point that you make about New Zealand. I've got a really good colleague, you probably know her, Joanne McKechn, who's from New Zealand. And she was describing how, you know, in New Zealand now they have basically two curricula. The one curriculum and set of standards are for non-Maori and the other are for Maori. And so it's even gone that next step. It's not just a translation of one curriculum. It's really acknowledging that there are two different identities there and that the best thing that they can be doing for the Maori children and the Pacifica students are to be really embracing the way that they learn, the way that their cultures learn and encouraging that. It's a fascinating step and I think it'll do the world well to be watching to see what that happens. Yeah, I was in Alaska a couple of years ago, and I was about to speak to all of the principals in Alaska. But before I spoke, the state commissioner of education made remarks. And in his remarks, he said, and it was interesting to hear this from someone in his position. He says, we don't know how to educate native Alaskan children. All the signs are that they're dropping out of school in droves. Their reading proficiency is very low. Their math proficiency, very low. And what's worse, we're seeing signs of trauma, of high suicide rates, and we don't know what to do. 
And then after that admission, he proceeded to describe how the state was going to continue to do what it's been doing, which was using testing as a basis for holding schools and educators accountable and uh, focusing on standards. So after his remarks, I went up to and introduced myself and I said, I was so pleased to hear you acknowledge that the state had not done a good job at serving Indigenous children. My question is, why are you doing the same thing that you've been doing then? Why aren't you willing to try something different? Why don't we recognize that the problems that you're describing amongst Indigenous children are actually new? They weren't always there. That is, in some ways, if we simply stop doing the things that have hurt and alienated these kids, maybe that might be the beginning of an effort. And, you know, a person who spoke, I think, quite eloquently about this is my friend, Sir Ken Robinson, who passed away just over a year ago. But, he, you know, he talks about it not necessarily in the context of Indigenous children, but of children generally, and how, in so many ways, the issues we see facing kids, the number of kids now who are seen as hyperactive or depressed, how these are very much new problems that weren't always there. And you consider the fact that play is increasingly not seen as part of learning and that kids are not given the chance to develop their creative and critical skills. You know, Ken attributed many of the difficulties we're seeing amongst kids to the way in which education has evolved away from its kind of developmental origins. And so, you know, equity has to be connected to culture, has to be connected to what we know about child and about community development. I also think, Pedro, that, you know, we have to get better. And I think we're starting along that path of really integrating learning and well-being, because that's something that I think we just didn't acknowledge the well-being part of learning. And we know, and certainly our psychiatrists, our our healthcare professionals certainly have helped to guide us that kids need to know who they are. They have to have a sense of identity. They have to be proud of who they are. They have to be able to express themselves in the way that they need to when they're learning. And if that well-being, if that foundational piece is not there, they can't be successful in learning. And it doesn't matter what kind of test you're using on them. They're not going to be successful because they're not comfortable in their skin and they're not valued for who they are in the culture that they come from. And I think that's something that we can do a better job of really constantly having that back and forth between education professionals, healthcare professionals, and really learning from each other to try to make sure that we're looking after that whole child. That's right. And, you know, it seems ironic that we've discovered the whole child (laughs) recently because it's almost common sense, right, that you can't separate a child's intellectual abilities from their emotional needs, their social needs, their physical needs. It's all occurring in the same person. But we're now starting to see a recognition. We can't just focus on the academics. We have to create schools that address the needs of the whole child. We have to uh, prepare teachers to understand how these things are related, the social and emotional needs to the cognitive needs. Because when we approach children in this more humane way, then we are able to meet the needs of our kids. That's the reason why I say equity work is also about creating the conditions in schools that allow us to do this work. And those conditions include things like safety that's rooted in strong, positive relationships between adults and children and between the children themselves and with the parents. So this holistic approach, I think, is an essential part of the equity work as well. 
And you're right, the whole child approach. I mean, we talked about whole child education in the 70s. I mean, it's not a new concept, but somehow it was left to more intuition that, you know, educators naturally realized that there was a well-being place, a well-being that uh, took the stage. But I don't think we articulated it very well. And because we didn't talk about it, it wasn't as intentional. And I think maybe that's what's changing, Pedro, is there's more intentionality of really having language to describe, you know, what are we doing to improve learning? What are we doing to improve well-being? How do those things come together? And even, you know, moving on to social-emotional learning is very much talked about now and very much accepted. And even business, you know, our corporations that are hiring our students are now being very vocal and saying, it's not just good enough to have technical skills. It's not just good enough to have foundational literacy and numeracy skills. We need to have the graduates having social emotional skills as well so that they can come and be happy and well and successful in their careers. I think that's an evolution that is relatively new and will hopefully help in that area of equity. If we have all those things happening and those things are looked at for every child, it's got to have an impact on more equitable outcomes for students. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's easy to blame the politicians, but they do play a role in this because they got us fixated on test scores. They wanted the evidence that kids were learning. And the only evidence they looked at was how well they performed on standardized tests. The problem is that, well, there are many problems with that. (laughs) You know, how do you measure the value of a child feeling supported, uh, a child feeling welcomed, a child feeling a sense of pride in who they are? Those are critical, as we've said, to their development, to their well-being, but it's not necessarily going to show up on a test score. And so if the only thing that counts are the test scores, then what you do is you tell the educator, focus on the test score, focus on raising those scores at the expense of the other needs the children bring. And that, I think, has been the problem. So it's great to see employers saying, no, we need adults, workers who can also get along with others, who showed some sense of empathy, who are honest and ethical people. These things may not be testable, but they're certainly important, and we can't lose sight of that. The assessment question is such a huge one, and you know, particularly in jurisdictions where it's been handled so poorly. I mean, there's a place for large-scale assessment, and there's a difference between assessment that is standardized versus standards-based, where you're trying to get a sense of, you know, general levels of proficiency for students. But more importantly than even the content of the assessment is what the jurisdiction does with it. How do they report it out? How do they use the information? If the information is used to actually provide resources, allocate resources to the children and the schools where there's the highest propensity of students that are struggling, then that's great, right? It helps you allocate those resources as opposed to using assessment results in a form of punishment where the school is punished, the staff is punished, the parents are punished, there's less resources for students. I mean, there's there's just some logical things, even If it's hard to change the whole culture of assessment in a country, surely there must be some obvious ways of using that information differently and making sure that it's a snapshot in time on a very narrow look at what children are experiencing and what their overall well-being is and taking that into consideration as opposed to it being a black and white situation where if this happens, the next step is this surely there must be something that can be done about that. Yeah, under No Child Behind, and I think, unfortunately, for the Canadians, you've followed some of these policies 
the bad policies we developed in the United States, we started using assessment as a weapon instead of a tool. And what I mean by that is we used scores to make judgments about kids, make judgments about teachers and schools. And what we know in education is assessment is critical. You've got to assess to see whether or not kids are making progress, whether or not they're learning the things that are important. But it's used best when it's done for diagnostic purposes, right? Mm -hmm. So we can figure out, okay, what does a child need more of and what's working? What should we change for this child to meet their learning needs? And when assessment is approached in that way, then it can actually facilitate the development and the academic progress in children. But, um, you know, this is, again, with this holistic focus that we talked about previously, my hope is that we'll return to seeing assessment really as just a tool, not as the panacea for all that ails education. That's one place I think that although education is a provincial jurisdiction in Canada and each province does their testing in a different way, I actually think there are some pretty significant differences with the way that it happens in Canada at that large scale level, that it is used more for a snapshot in time, getting a measure, you know, how are the kids coming along and a real focus on when we have that information, that's where we go in and allocate the resources to make sure that those students have the supports that they need and those staffs have the support that they need in the schools that have the highest need for that. The other thing that I think is a little bit different is a real messaging that teachers know their students best. Large-scale assessment is to get a snapshot up at that jurisdiction level, whether it's a district level or a provincial level. It's not to know what the student needs to have. Teachers are in the driver's seat for that. And I agree 100% with you. They need to be spending most of their time doing diagnostics assessment and formative assessment so that they can be providing feedback for students and adjusting their instruction to make sure that every one of their students gets to that finish line. And, you know, those are some things that are just so obvious. And how do we cross-jurisdictionally have those conversations to make sure that people land there with that? You know, that information can really be helpful, but it has to be, like you say, in that non-punitive. It's got to be in a supportive way. How does this inform how we try to improve student learning, not the other way around, not cutting people off at the knees because of a particular number? Yeah, I think part of the illusion that's out there is that test scores you know, it's like following the stock market. Are the stocks up or down? Are the scores up or down? We think it tells us something meaningful. But if you talk to any parent and you ask, what do you really want for your child? How do you define success? Chances are it's not going to be simply on the base of how high their scores were. Because if their children are depressed, if they're unhappy, if they are unethical, if they are uh, miserable people, no parent's going to be happy with that. And so parents do think holistically about the needs of their children, that we want our kids to be well-rounded, and uh, therefore they need an education that encourages that kind of well-rounded development as well. Absolutely. Pedro, just a a quick comment. I loved your book, A Search for Common Ground, about the toughest questions in K-12 that you wrote with Rick Hess. And I thought it was really interesting. You know, typically when we collaborate on writing books, it's, you know, people with like minds. And what I loved about that book was that you know, Rick comes from a different philosophical stance, perhaps. And that's what was so interesting about it is that the two of you could articulate very well kind of your stance on a topic, whether it was school choice or assessment or testing or privatization, etc. But then out of the conversation, 
came something that was some commonality across the two perspectives. And boy, when I look at uh, the world that we're in right now with such polarity, where you're either on this side or you're on that side, and those sides never get together, I thought your book was a really good example of, we've got to get talking more, and we've got to see, even from different perspectives, what's the commonplace? Because that commonplace is something that can have a massive impact on student learning. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Rick Hess is a fairly well-known conservative writer, commentator on educational issues. I've known him for probably about 20 years. And despite our differences on a number of issues, I would say we have a mutual respect for one another. And so he invited me to join him in this dialogue, a series of letters on a number of topics that have been the source of controversy and conflict in the United States in education. And now I would add that those controversies have only gotten worse (laughs) in the last few months. But what we try to do through the book is to show that it's possible to have civil debate. That is where we kind of express our ideas, but also thoughtfully respond. That means you have to actually listen to each other and then address what the the critical issue is. Because the fact is ideology doesn't serve us well if it doesn't help us solve the problems that we face. And I think that both Rick and I are also practical people. And I think most educators are. Ideology is not enough to solve critical issues like how to make sure all kids are reading and that their needs are being met in school. And so what we try to demonstrate in the book is that we can find some common ground and we certainly can engage in respectful disagreements, even when we might decide we don't agree. But it doesn't mean we have to be enemies as a result. I think the book does two things, Pedro. You know, first of all, from a content standpoint, you do give some examples of when you come from different perspectives, what are some solutions both sides of the argument could agree on that would be good for students and schools? The second thing is just modeling, that you can have those respectful conversations. And for the sake of our kids, we better all be doing that. We can't continue to have the kind of discourse or non-discourse that we have across different ideologies. We've got to come together for this next generation. We owe them that as adults. And uh, I think you do a great job in that book uh, showing that. It's, it's really unique. I mean, I have to admit, I don't think I've read a book like that where it's outside of that norm of people that collaborate because they have similar thinking. So kudos to you and to Rick. I think it's a great model and I hope to see more of that. I'm going to finish off with two questions. Creating a culture of equity within a school. Let's go right down to that school unit because, you know, there's so much work in spite of the policies that, you know, are at a higher level that make it challenging. What are some of the things that schools can do? Principals, teachers, parents working together. And I guess that's probably the first part of it, <laughs> having having those groups plus the kids working together and uh, talking about equity and the kinds of uh, initiatives that they'll work on together. What are some of the other strategies? I think it often starts with clarity of mission. Are we clear about what we're doing together, collectively? That means that we have to be willing to engage each other as a team, as a staff, respectfully, building a sense of community amongst that staff so that we are clear together about the work we're doing and that we're in a position to to support each other in that work. And This is the hard part to have the more difficult conversations when we see the work is not being done appropriately, when we see children not being treated fairly, be able to speak up and to talk about it and to work it through. So I think it starts there, but then it has to extend to the work we do with children and parents. 
parents are responsible for at least half of student learning. And we know from the research that when there's reinforcement at home for the learning that's occurring in school, kids will do better academically. Well, that means there has to be a partnership with parents that's rooted in respect and trust and empathy. And parents know if they're being judged by the educators. They know if they're being looked down upon. And that builds separation. And so what you need is to build trust and uh, rooted in empathy with parents. And I think you have to do the same thing with the children. When children feel as though they're supported, when they feel as though they're welcomed, they tend to do better. And over and over again, with the schools I visit, I often say you can learn so much about a school by just talking to the kids. The kids will tell you right away where are they challenged. They'll tell you where they feel supported. They'll tell you whether or not the teachers care about them. They'll also tell you if they're bored and disinterested. And so you've really got to build this community. And this is part of the work of creating the conditions, creating a culture where equity is at the center, learning is at the center, relationships are prioritized, and where the work of education can actually be done with a sense of joy and inspiration and is not tedious and does not tear people down. I often say, uh, you know, I've never been to a good school where people feel demoralized, (laughs) where people feel disrespected, where the children are miserable. You know, the joy that's apparent in good schools is a reflection of the culture. And it's also reflected in the morale amongst the educators. It'll be interesting. Uh, it's almost a point in time, Pedro, with the pandemic that, you know, many parents actually became more involved in their child's education because things moved virtually. So many parents had an opportunity to actually be more connected to their child's learning and to their child's teacher. But we know that with that pandemic and moving virtually, there was actually even a greater gap between the parents that were able to participate with their children, guiding them in their virtual learning, and others that were not able to do that because they were working three jobs, because they didn't have the language ability, because they didn't have access to connectivity or to devices. And so really, it's almost an opportunity to stop in time and say, okay, what can we be doing to actually improve that and make sure that we're not losing that group of parents And how do we connect with them if there's times when virtual learning is taking place? That's so important. I have to remind people, homework is an equity issue. Absolutely. Pedro, I was the superintendent of program in two different districts. (laughs) I can tell you over a a 10-year period before I became chief superintendent, I can tell you that literally on a, I would say, biannual basis, there would be a whole maelstrom around the whole concept of homework. And of course, we'd have, you know, the camp that was saying you don't give nearly enough homework. And then you'd have the other camp that was saying that there was an equity and that the more homework that we give, the greater that gap builds. So (laughs) believe me, this was one that I, you know, had to deal with in the media and, you know, notes back to uh, the large school district that I worked in. So I completely get that whole equity piece. And that's, you know, what we always landed on was the most important thing is for us to be making sure that every child can learn and they all have opportunities to do that. And if it shifts to this idea that this student gets this much homework and this much support from their parents to basically either be doing the work or guiding the work, it's not good for either one of those groups. So yeah, I hear you. It's not. And if you don't have access to a college-educated parent who has time or a tutor, then you're at a disadvantage. And we know there are many children at a disadvantage because They don't have the support at home. They may not even have a place to get the work done at home, but they're being judged. 
But the other side, and I'm glad to hear your district was at least discussing it, is teachers get very little guidance on how to assign homework so that it's meaningful, so that it does reinforce the learning that occurs in school. Too often teachers are assigning work that kids were not even exposed to for homework. And then they're not even grading and evaluating it. So kids learn very quickly. This is just busy work. And they also experience it as frustration. So I think, you know, I don't take the position. I'm not against homework. But homework only is useful if it's an extension of learning that occurs while children are in school. The harder part should be while they're in school and the teacher's present to answer questions. To encourage the discipline of learning, I think, is important. But we need to make sure it's meaningful. I think we shift it from homework to the concept of learning anytime, anywhere. And how do you support? How does the teacher support that? How does the school and the jurisdiction, how do we involve parents? How do we give students voice and choice so they're learning the kinds of things that they're so passionate about, they don't want to stop when they walk out of the school door? Exactly. How do we develop a love of learning? Think about how different things would be if more kids were reading independently and how that could help them, not just in academically, but in their lives. I would say if you're a reader, you'll never be bored. And, uh, and you don't have to entertain yourself on your smartphone because there are books that can help you to expand your knowledge. And, uh, you know, you can travel through books because you can learn about other parts of the world. And so I would encourage the educators who are listening, you know, technology is useful, but there are lots of things that work before technology. One of them was reading. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, my father, who did not graduate from high school, was an avid reader. And they used to tell us that, you know, you get a free education with a library card. <laughs> and he practiced it. And he used to make us go to the library regularly because he understood the value and importance of reading. And that's why I continue to be an avid reader. And so I really would think it's just really critical that we get kids reading. It sure is. Pedro, it has been great having this chat with you. Any last comments? What's next for Pedro Naguera? What are you going to be up to in the next little bit? You know, what I'm thinking about all the time is how to impact education. I know that the key to our future is the way we educate kids now. And I think about the big problems we face with respect to climate change and inequality and the fact that we have so many people who don't really trust science. That's the reason why we have so many anti-vaxxers, at least in the States, people who are afraid of vaccines. So we have a lot of work to do in education to instill understanding of how knowledge can be used to solve problems. And we need our children to be empowered as learners so that they can confront the uncertainties of the future with courage. So this, to me, is really important work, and I'm happy to be in a place where I can do it and be a part of it. Pedro, I can tell you that those comments are very reassuring to all of us because it's great to have good thinkers like yourself that are in a position where you can influence. You can influence within your school of education, but far beyond that, right through the U.S. and around, people really appreciate having had this opportunity to listen to you. So thank you very much for being here, and we will connect with you again. Thank you, Jen. Great to be with you once again. Thanks to Pedro for joining our podcast today. He has set the tone to start the school year with a focus on equality, ensuring that we help every student reach their full potential. A great starting point for all of us. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out the roundtable that Pedro did with his colleague, Michael Fullen. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal, linked in the description of this podcast. On our next episode, to be released on September 15th, I'll be talking to Andy Hargraves about his new book, 
Five Pathways of Student Engagement. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. Thank you.